Hello, my name is Justin the Clue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And today we're talking about the comedy legend William Claude Dukenfield. Or perhaps you know him as Otis Cobbless or Mahatma Kane Jeeves. Now we're talking about W.C. Fields. What I said was his actual name, and what Will said were his pseudonyms that he wrote his scripts under. One of the most popular comedians of his day, a comedian who was rediscovered by college kids in the 60s and 70s, but also somebody who I feel like in my lifetime has kind of diminished in stature. When I was a kid, W.C. Fields had no place in my comedy landscape. Like, my dad didn't talk about him. It was all about the Three Stooges, the Marx Brothers. I was aware of Buster Keaton, Harold Lloyd. But W.C. Fields was someone that I probably only first heard about in context with stuff like The Simpsons. Interesting, yeah. Well, I mean, when I was a kid, he he didn't mean a lot to me either. But I felt I feel like he was more of a common cultural reference point. Mm, maybe. Like the drunk kind of funny guy. Yeah. I maybe mean, Homer Simpson is the one that, like... Bother me? pushed him out like the Simpsons and the Homer character yeah and I don't know today it seems like I almost never hear him referred to nope um, when the AFI did their list of the top 100 comedies It's a Gift was on there would it be on there now I'm I think so it sure. probably still would be yeah. because the people voting for the AFI are old fuddy duddies anyway <laughs> so. sure but you know when you go on Letterboxd I would say pretty lukewarm reactions to really? some of these movies I yeah. mean like he was in about 13 films for Paramount and those are like the sound ones Mm -hmm. and i would say that maybe three of them are like great Mm -hmm. and it's a gift and the bank dick are the main ones that everybody talks about and i think also some of his shorts Mm -hmm. um are essential people don't watch shorts anymore though well you know they're great Uh, but also there were just a lot of like individual scenes and the rest of them oftentimes the rest of them would have stuff that is kind of boring yeah the classic like there's you know a love story to pad things out about two characters we don't care about let's get back to Fields doing the shtick that he would do on stage. But Fields didn't mean a lot to you. No. Um, He's somebody who, when I first saw him as a kid... I didn't really get him, but then I feel like I got him when I was a teenager because he started to remind me of my grandpa. Really? My, my grandpa died mm-hmm. on, my, on my mother's side, and then I saw this this one short of his, I think it's The Pharmacist, where there's a moment in it where somebody somebody says, where he says, where's the paper? It's under your arm. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, where's my glasses? They're on your head. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I swear that's an exchange I've had with my grandpa. Do you think that's like a generational thing? Like the way that W.C. Fields acts, if you haven't seen him before, he's like this big guy, most famous for like a bulbous nose. Alcohol enhanced, Mm -hmm. horrifying nose. Who mumbles everything in his last few movies seems to have very few teeth. Well, something else that reminds me of my grandpa is just his life in Mm. the best W.C. Fields movies. So like in The Bank Dick, It's a Gift. My grandpa was like this where he sort of lived this life of quiet desperation Mm -hmm. in a a completely loveless marriage. But he coped with it by having his, his little pleasures and his inside jokes to himself. And he was kind of a simple man who liked, you know, going for a walk and uh, and he had a, a very wicked sense of humor if you caught him in the right moment, you know? What's funny about W.C. And he Fields... was misanthropic. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. <laughs> Is that W.C. Fields, like, his characters don't have senses of humor because they're mostly dum-dums. <laughs> and... What's amazing about the popularity of him is that he is the everyman in the sense that he's uh, selfish, he is lazy, and he still gets everything uh, given to him at the end of most of his pictures. Yeah, he lies, Mm -hmm. uh, he cheats, he kicks children in the ass. He hates small animals. Uh, All of this together makes him like an anarchic figure. Like that's why the people Mm. in like universities loved him because he represented someone who like, I guess didn't follow the rules or didn't care for the rules. Yeah, kind of like the way they liked the Marx Brothers in the the 60s and 70s too. But watching his movies this week, uh, I was surprised how oddly sympathetic I found him. Really? Because the life that he lives in some of these movies movies it's comfortable to a degree it's he he's a middle class character in something like the bank dick and it's a gift but it it's also hopeless yeah you know? i mean he does live in 
giant mansions yeah. with a family that treats him like garbage. There's a scene in the bank dick <laughs> where he shows up and he's like, I'm on the cover of the newspaper. And in one shot, he hands it to, I believe, his mother-in-law. She takes it and throws it in the fire. Without even, without looking, even at looking at it. it. <laughs> that is so funny. Yeah, and that's something that my grandma absolutely would have done. <laughs> really? Yeah, to, to my grandpa. So, so like... He, in several of these movies, he's hoping to have this some like get rich quick scheme mm-hmm. and he'll cheat his way into doing it because like, of course he wants to get rich quick. There's no other hope for him to escape this, but this horrifying life. A lot of the movies like the bank dick show, even when he gets rich, like it's still the same life. Like there's nowhere <laughs> to escape to. Yeah. Like it shows him just getting drunk again, even though that his family respects him now because he has money and they live in a giant mansion. Yeah. Uh, so W.C. Fields came out of vaudeville like all the comedians that came out in the early ages of motion pictures uh i think he according to the a and e biography i watched this week he left home at age 13 mm-hmm. classic story where he had a father that he didn't get along with and that fueled some of his neediness and misanthropy and then as he got older he had a wife who he didn't get along with and that fueled some of the you know ambiguous misogyny of his career and famously he didn't know how to read or write but he uh, learned those skills with his second wife, I believe, mm. and then it actually became one of his major passions, and he supposedly had a giant library, and that he was a bookworm that was always reading as well. I think you can kind of tell that from some of his dialogue. Yeah, yeah. like the wordplay and stuff like that, like the famous way that he swears without swearing. And later, of course, he was in an adaptation of David Copperfield. Mm, which was one of his big dreams as well. Yeah. And he was most famous... For being a juggler, mm-hmm. which uh, he was called supposedly the world's greatest juggler at times, and that this kind of evolved into like a stage show where he would do a bunch of stuff, including trick pool shots. <laughs> but he became known as a comedian because you know if he fumbled something with the juggling, he would say some quips about it, and the audience loved that. Mm-hmm. And eventually, he started getting a few more quips, a little less juggling, uh, and and over time, he developed this irascible, drunk character. Uh, Which only really made an appearance or became popular as well in the sound era, because he could finally talk. One thing that did appear in the silent era, you know, I recently watched two of his silent films that were released on Blu-ray from Kino, Running Wild and It's the Old Army Game. I was kind of surprised how much of the Fields character is there already, but but it's that kind of henpecked husband Mm. character, like this this guy who lives this life of quiet desperation and wants to get out of it. Do you think it just spoke to people, I guess? Because, like, Hollywood movies at this time, Depression era-ish, when W.C. Fields was getting really popular, it was all about the glamour and the glitz and the, like, look at these wonderful people and the wonderful lives that they lead. And that's what Hollywood thought people of the Depression era wanted to see. They wanted that escape. While W.C. Fields is showing, like, a reflection of what their lives could be. Yeah, I guess. I mean... I do get the sense he was like a bit of a working class hero mm-hmm. for some of the audience. Like this guy who, you know, doesn't let the shittiness of his life get in the way of his ability to make... Uh, Be shitty to other people, yeah, I guess. Yeah, and, and and make jokes and, do, and you know, kick the kid in the ass like we all want to do. <laughs> yeah, or like there's a running gag in his films that he's like, don't let me, t- don't tell me that... Y- I don't love you as he like raises his hand to hit his kid. People are terrible to him in these movies. They are. Oftentimes. But it almost feels that like, like there's a reason they're terrible to him. (laughs) Well, there's a scene in it. I think, is it, it's a gift. They, they, they they blur together. together, But I think the scene, it's a gift where a little kid comes into his store and like, just throws something at him. Yep. And then and then there's just an exquisitely timed moment when he like gets hit and he goes, Aah! like he really hurts. <laughs> yeah. Or there's I mean, a scene in that movie too where he's just trying to get to sleep. Yeah, on and he's on the porch and like a kid is like dropping stuff into his mouth or dropping like tools to hit him on the head and he's like, you just can't get to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean like that stuff is funny. But it's interesting that it's also tied together with him being such an ass. Yeah. Like, he's not just the henpecked husband who's trying to do well and failing. He's just, like, a terrible person. Well, that's his, like, 
minor he's not that terrible person yeah he's just lazy and he lies yeah, yeah. and eventually he'll kick the kid in the ass yeah. but for but for the most part he's somebody who you know we see him suppressing so much sadness <laughs> yep. like like in the bank dick when his wife and his mother-in-law and his children are so mean to him yeah you know for most of the movie he just goes oh okay dear you know and his triumph if he does have a triumph is that at least in his inner world he has little jokes yeah, like there's that scene in the bank dick where where he's leading the guy around. He says, "Ah, oh, children, I love children. I spent eighteen, nineteen, girl <laughs> children." And the way he delivers it, it's it's like he doesn't even deliver it like a joke. He delivers it like he's just amusing himself. But what do you think of the mix in these movies? I mean, like the most famous ones were directed by Edward F. Klein, who had worked as W. C. Fields throughout like that row of films. What do you think of the way that it mixes, like, crazy visual gags as well as W.C. Fields, like, you know, verbal stuff? Because, like, they're pretty crazy. Yeah. I mean, in my opinion, the movies are at their best when they're at their least disciplined. Oh, you think that, like, when it's just W.C. Fields being able to do his thing? Yeah. As opposed to, like, the crazy chase climaxes that he's involved in? Well, I do like the crazy chase climaxes, Mm -hmm. but I like his movies when... For example, they don't have a dramatic subplot or they mm-hmm. don't have musical numbers or they don't have other comedians coming in. To it. Like, I like it when it's a stream of consciousness plot mm-hmm. and and it's just kind of about the attitude. Now, we should point out that W.C. Fields kind of persona as like this hateful kind of hard drinking person was something that developed throughout his career and that one of his earlier film roles, he played like a beer, like obsessed pilot. And that became how it kind of defined him and then he actually became an alcoholic yeah and it's interesting as you go through his career because he looks worse and worse and Mm -hmm. worse as his career goes along like he lost contracts he was out of commission for times because he would like have to go to the sanitarium and dry out yeah they actually um told him that he couldn't make movies anymore for a while because he was just too difficult to work with and he was drunk all the time and then he ended up uh, doing a radio show with a ventriloquist dummy. Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy, yeah. <laughs> and that made him so popular that he actually got to make movies again, including The Bank Dick and um, Never Give a Sucker an Even Break. And that's funny that there was that, if you look at his filmography, there's a whole bunch of years where he just wasn't making movies, and that was the reason. So let's first talk about It's a Gift, mm-hmm. which I think is 1932 or so. Yeah. Uh, had you ever seen it before? I had, and I only saw it because Joe Dante came to TIFF and they had like a remastered version, and he introduced mm-hmm the movie. Oh, nice. And so I, I wasn't able to go, so I ended up checking it out. So I assumed that I hadn't seen it, and as I was watching, I was like, no, 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 I have seen this, because <laughs> I suddenly remembered all the bits and the lines and stuff like that, and that's just an example I think of W.C. Fields is just not talked about anymore, so that kind of, like, faded away, because I just mm-hmm. hadn't thought about it. It doesn't get a lot of foot traffic in yeah. your brain, yeah. Like, the whole set piece of him trying to run his general store and, like, the guy that comes in, he's like, I want my kumquats! Yeah. It's so funny. He's not even respected at his work. <laughs> no, he's not. <laughs> he's like, hurry up! And he's like, but he's also bad at his job. Yeah. So, like, the plot of the movie is that W.C. Fields is henpecked at home. His family treats him like garbage. He run- And then he runs a pharmacy as yeah. well. But all he wants to do is escape and own an orange grove. Mm-hmm. This plot doesn't really matter. Because uh, it's, like, the classic comedies scenes just go on and on just like jokes stacking on to each other like that day at the grocery store like not only does a guy want his kumquats but a blind man walks in (laughs) and the whole like gist of him is that like he just destroys everything yeah and then he has to cross the street and shenanigans ensue it's a movie that is like four long comic set pieces maybe Mm -hmm. because there's another bit where he's trying to get to sleep yeah which i think is non-stop laughs (laughs) yeah i think that's such a funny scene or you know there's a scene where eventually they get he buys this orange grove across the country mm-hmm. and so they do a cross-country car trip to get there and then they go camping yeah uh, very simpson-esque in some of the stuff that happens there's a great moment in that camping scene where there are some like vagrants near their campsite singing and his wife tells him oh go go shoo them away and he comes over and he starts listening to them singing and then he starts joining in on the <laughs> yeah scene. and it's the it's, only joy that he's ever had in this movie i exactly i love it it's like it's like oh finally he just has a moment of camaraderie yeah. <laughs> now is like his miserable state in these films his own doing or is it just 
how he ended up finding himself. I think it's the fate that could befall so many of us. Yeah, it's like yeah. the blue collar, like yeah. you marry somebody, and then a mixture of laziness and circumstances. You got a job, you yeah. got a family to support, mm-hmm. you know? And this is where you end up, and there's no more joy, so you have to go drown your sorrows at the local bar. Yeah, that's right. Uh, <laughs> uh, which is manned by Shemp Howard. Ah, uh, in his 1940 classic, The Bank Dick. <laughs> That's right. Which is a movie that took me rather aback the first time I saw it because it didn't quite have the laughs I was expecting it to. Mm-hmm. And But I've probably seen it a half dozen times. And really? it keeps getting wow. better for me every time I see it because it's so much about just the attitude of the character, the peculiar stream of consciousness nature of the plot. The Bank Dick has more sheeming from W.C. Fields than something like it's a gift. Like, it's a gift. He's kind of bad at his job. Mm. And, you know, he won't listen to people. But, like, in the bank, Dick, he is actively going out of his way to lie. And just, like, he gets a job as a director at the beginning of the movie. <laughs> yeah, so the plot is, you know, uh, he's having a hard time at home. Uh, he's just a bit of a loser. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Let's try to go through the plot of the yeah. bank, Dick. He goes to the local watering hole, which is called the Black Pussycat Cafe. Which they take every opportunity to say. They oftentimes just refer to it as the Black Pussy. Mm-hmm. And if you think W.C. Fields wasn't aware of what <laughs> yeah. that could mean... Uh, at one point when he's at the bar, a movie producer comes in and he's very anxious. Oh, my director's drunk. What am I going to do? So at a bar, he decides to hire the drunk man who says, I used to direct pictures. <laughs> <laughs> so he takes him to set and he's like, this is your new director. And there's, Ah, the white man life. So easy. 10 minutes of W.C. Fields directing a movie until Shemp Howard, the bartender, walks past and W.C. Fields sees him. and He goes, oh, excuse me. And he follows Shemp off the set and never really ne- mentioned again. Never again until the very end. Yes, that's right. And then the rest of the movie is uh, W.C. Fields uh, stumbles into a bank robbery, takes credit for foiling it, even though he <laughs> The didn't. knife was this big. <laughs> and so he gets a job as the uh, chief of security, I guess, yes. at the bank. And then he gets involved in an embezzlement scheme. <laughs> that's right. Which he then has to cover up. <laughs> and that's what takes up a big chunk of the film. I like that the atmosphere of the movie feels... Like, there's no intrusion of the real world onto it. It feels kind of like a feature-length Max Fleischer cartoon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, like, the films that W.C. Fields made with Edward F. Klein do have that feeling, like Million Dollar Legs mm-hmm. or um, Never Give a Sucker an Even Break, which is the craziest of his movies. And, like, all the characters in them, there's this one character actor who keeps appearing in these movies who looks horrifying. He's at the bar. <laughs> yeah. You know who I'm talking about? I know about? exactly who you're talking about. Like, his movies are full of just strange looking people like uh, also Shemp you yeah. know just weird looking guys and that's where the comedy comes from as well as W.C. Fields acting like a jackass the entire time I mean like the bank dick like most of these comedy films does end with a big chase that I think is really funny oh yeah at the same time like W.C. Fields at this point in time he's for, he's in his 60s like he's not a physical comedian anymore and he looks I think horrifying he in looks the bank bad dick. yeah and to me that adds to yeah. like the, the humor of it in a way it adds to like the the sadness that is the other side of the coin of Fields. It doesn't have that like charming drunk guy comedy, right? Yeah. It's like, no, this is like a sad, drunk, broken man. Yeah. You watch him in It's a Gift or Million Dollar Likes and he just looks kind of like a doughy middle-aged guy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if you watch him in The Bank Dick or Never Give a Sucker an Even Break, he looks not good. He looks like he's melting and like, (laughs) like he's going to collapse at any moment. Very overweight. Yes. I mean, he would die just a few years later from some medical complication. I should just warn people that, that most of these movies and the bank dick included, like have a bit of racism in them. Yes. Uh, hard to avoid on, in comedies of this era. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Very direct racism. But I would hate to think that somebody might like invite 10 of their friends over to watch the bank dick, which you should do by the way. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but not know that that's coming. Yeah. Yes. That's right. Uh, is there any more deeper cuts of W.C. Fields? Like, we talked about his short films a little bit at the beginning, and you made me watch, made me watch, held the gun <laughs> I forced to me. You. Yeah, uh, one of his shorts, which was called The Fatal Glass of Beer. Mm-hmm. 
And would you say that like encompasses most of his shorts? Because it's like a silly non sequitur. The plot doesn't really matter. Yeah, very much. Well, there's another short that I revisited today called uh, The Golf Specialist, where it's mostly just him doing his golf routine. Like mm. they're kind of vaudeville routines filmed with the barest plot. Mm. And in a I way, mean, his movies are as well. Yeah. But I think like the shorts are him at his purest mm. in a way. <laughs> Did it, you like The Fatal Glass of Beer? I thought it was fine. Okay. Like it, uh, 15 minutes. It's a little long. I felt there were a lot of jokes that I'm like, had to be there to get cultural references. I mean, there's some funny running gags where he gets hit in the face with snow every time when he sticks his head out and says like, yeah, uh, it was fine. All right, fair enough. <laughs> but like, what? But you find it hilarious, right? Like, I mean, I gotta, I gotta win over the moderates like you. If <laughs> that's I'm, right. If I'm gonna a- attain political power. <laughs> uh, but I feel like that wasn't a movie though, where he was that like scumbag character, where like the dentist is one of those ones where he is that guy. Where he's like, just bad at his job, he doesn't care, he's lazy. Like, that's what W.C. Fields I love. I think in The Fatal Glass of Beer, I like the idea that it's like this ludicrous Victorian melodrama. Set in Canada. Set in, like, the very north of Canada. And, you know, he's like, he goes out with his dogs and it's the shittiest rear projection you've (laughs) ever seen. Or there's the whole flashback with his son being tempted in the city. And it's, it's, uh, you know... Totally corny and stupid and played totally straight-facedly. Do you think the WC Fields could have kept going, though? Or it feels like there's, like, a shelf life to his comedy. I think there's a shelf life to most comedians, weirdly. Yeah. It seems like a lot of comedians kind of have ten big years. Mm-hmm. I do feel like when you watch his films, like, towards the end of his career, when he start, when he got kind of complete control mm-hmm. with, with The Bank Dick and with Never Give a Sucker an Even Break... It feels like the end of an evolution. Yes. I mean, like, Never Give a Sucker is almost hell's a poppin' level crazy. <laughs> yeah. And it, I like that he's still working with the same director who he made a hell's a poppin' style film really early in his career, Million Dollar Legs. Mm-hmm. And, like, Never Give a Sucker is just, like, nonsense. And I that I like because it's just accepting, like, why even do a plot? Eventually, the title card, The End, will appear and the movie will come to a close. He doesn't even play a character in it. He, he plays W.C. Fields. Yeah, yeah. And, like, it, the movie starts with him looking at the sign for the bank dick which i assume didn't do too well commercially i don't think it did yeah there's like a series of jokes like uh someone walks by going like raspberries raspberries (laughs) he's like ah who's saying that and it's just like a raspberry salesman well i like that if the bank dick didn't do well then he just doubled down with never (laughs) get a sucker and even break where yeah but he's at the movie studio and he goes into the the head of the studio to pitch his new screenplay and most of the movie is you know scenes from this screenplay where it's an absurd thing of him in I don't know Europe or something yeah like jumping out of planes and like <laughs> landing in like the secret grotto with like beautiful women are there but they also have men in gorilla suits Mwah, my favorite love it, love it. and like a dog with like giant like canines Margaret Dumont is there yep. <laughs> and then every 15 minutes it'll cut back to the office of like the studio head going this is ridiculous and he's like ah just give me a minute I'll give you the rest and there's still he never I mean you can never escape I guess at that time there's like a side plot with like his niece or granddaughter or something like that and it's like who yeah. cares but there is also a tangent where he goes to like the the cafe at the studio and and there's some physical comedy where there's I don't know there's just a moment in this movie that I love where he's like fishing the olive out oh, of his so drink. good and he can't get it in his <laughs> mouth and it takes so long for him to like it gets right close to his lips, but then he'll move the thing so it'll roll down again. Ah, that stuff is so There's good. a lot of good, just, like, small physical gags in his movies, like him trying to put on a hat. Yes, and, and it keeps breaking. Yeah. Or, like, him just being treated like garbage. Like, that's what, like, W.C. Fields is really funny when he's up against someone mm-hmm. who is, like, putting him down a lot. And he's like, oh, uh, like, he's trying to order from the menu, and he's like, oh, uh, can I have this? And they keep scratching it off until he's like, I guess I'll have ham and eggs. Oh, uh, I guess I'll just have eggs then. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I'm, I want people to appreciate W.C. Fields because I've heard from people who say they can't get into him. Uh, I've heard from people this week, in fact, who said hmm. they, they, can't, they can't get into him. And what do you think they're bare? Did they say like a barrier that I just just didn't find it funny? And I, I know that comedy is subjective. Yeah, uh, I don't actually believe that. But <laughs> but but like everything I, I find funny is funny. Well, I don't know. Revisiting his movies this week, I was shocked by how modern they were in some ways. Like, you know, if you like the big Lebowski, I think you, you can find some of that in wc fields with his attitude and if you like tim and eric 
Or but you're I, like Norm Macdonald. I think the difference between them and W.C. Fields is that people, when they're at home watching it, they're like, oh, I could be, this is too slow. I could be doing something else instead. So it's really, you have to get trapped in a cinema watching it with a crowd full of people who are laughing along with it. Yeah, like, oh, maybe. okay, yeah. But I don't know. Try watching it. Put your phone away and just enjoy the uh, absurdity, the randomness, the, mm-hmm. you know, the elements of, to use the dreaded phrase, anti-comedy that yeah. are in these movies. But also, like, comedic. Yeah. Because, like, there's a lot of there funny belly jokes. laughs too and so wc fields after um never give a sucker he kind of appeared in a few films in one of them one of those like broadway of 1940 yeah, something. he did some cameos exactly mostly playing himself but he wasn't that active in the last five or six years because he was in rehab for most of it mm-hmm. uh, he was very sick and eventually he died a miserable death. Yes. Uh, as one of the documentaries say, it supposedly he died on Christmas, a holiday that he hated. And a nurse said that right before he died, he put a finger to his lips as if going, shh. And hilariously, the article I was reading was like, there's no evidence of this happening. I can guarantee you this is not how W.C. Fields died. In the A&E biography I watched, somebody said that towards the end of his life, he did at one point say wistfully, I wonder what it would have been like without drink. Oh, boy. Which, which is, but you know, perhaps if he didn't have, well, I'm not going to say that. No, uh, yeah, don't <laughs> say that. I mean. I will say that the movie is like convey his pain. And as we were saying earlier, like the public made him the man that he is. Yeah, They're like, yeah. well, you drink, you should drink. And he's like, oh. Ah, uh, poor W.C. Fields. So, Justin, do we have any letters this week? We do! As per usual, you can send us letters at podcast at gmail.com. And the first one this week is from Joe West, and it goes... Dear Important Cinema Club, greetings from rural Norfolk, UK. I'd like to thank you for discussing interesting films and filmmakers, allowing someone like me, whose primary love in life isn't film, to discover deep cuts I'd never find otherwise. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> yeah, me and Will, the only thing we can love is movies. <laughs> Uh, but I actually like that. We've heard from a few people who say like, oh, I don't like movies that much, but I like listening to you guys because it's very interesting. The people who really know movies can see through us. Yeah, <laughs> they don't listen. Yeah. I'd like to ask you about the presence of hauntology within the film world and whether it's an obvious occurrence. And I'd like to know what your thoughts are on the matter. Don't worry, he defines it. <laughs> I'm talking about the version of the term used by the late cultural theorist Mark Fisher, who wrote about how the invention of the internet and general speeding up of digital technology has caused culture he refers to music to slow down and to recycle retro cultural objects and themes causing our current time to feel like a vacuum with no set identity he gave the example of the 20 year gap between the mid 70s and mid 90s where so much happened progressed and shifted the hippies to the punks to the ravers and compared it to the last 20 years where for example we have people like Ed Sheeran who have a sound which is akin to popular music from the 60s and 70s or club music that sounds like it's straight out of 80s or 90s 90s. Anyway, I was wondering whether you think the idea relates to film in any ways, or if it has only progressed, as maybe films tend to age less flatteringly than music for mainstream audiences. Thanks for taking the time to read this, and apology to anyone who thinks I may have hashed Fisher's ideas in any way. I'm no intellectual, sincerely, Joe. Well, good thing, Joe. Neither are we. Well, I have read Mark Fisher's book, Capitalist Realism, and he does talk about... You're laughing at me. <laughs> yeah, anyway, but he does uh, talk. Well, he, he talks about... Uh, so, and I, We're well, supposed to be the blue-collar podcast. What I'm trying to convey is that I am an intellectual. <laughs> That's right, yep. <laughs> um, but, but he does talk about, like... You know, defining it as capitalist realism, this idea that because capitalism has become the only option for the world that we're encouraged to think is possible, Mm -hmm. that limits our imaginations, you know. Uh, He mentioned the internet, and I think that's what's the idea of globalization, normalization of these ideas has led to, like, less kind of changes against what's the norm. Because, like, what is the norm now? Fashion has been the same for almost two decades at this point. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Like, Yeah, it is. But it's also because stuff like the internet allows you to find, like, your group, right? So you don't have to always face up against the norm. So you think there's no, like, mass culture in the way? I mean, there is mass culture, but I think that people can find ways to pursue their own passions if they want to. Well, you know, at the box office last weekend, I think something like eight of the top 10 movies were sequels. Yes. And and 10 of the top 12 movies were sequels. Mm -hmm. And I'm not positive if this relates to the idea of ontology, but I think it's an 
alarming development. Yes, well, I mean, I, that links into it. I, I was looking at more as a style choice yeah. and how style evolves. Some people have pointed out, I think Nick Pinkerton wrote an article in Film Comment about it last time, about how, you know, isn't it crazy that the 40 years from the first Star Wars to now yes. is the same amount of time as the 40 years from, like, Flash Gordon to Star Wars, and yet, like like culture changed so much in those 40 years but like like so many of the brands of the last 40 years still exist today but how many of the brands from the 30s existed i think that also has a lot to do with the internet and that these like 40 to 50 year old men have a presence in a way that they didn't have 40 Mm. years ago like they can make themselves vocal about this stuff in ways that people that are in charge have no way to parse of like what has value and what doesn't have value because back in the day it's like i want to give stuff to kids Mm -hmm. right so let's make something new for kids so we don't have to use an intellectual property now it's like what will this 50 year old man child like that he liked when he was a kid i also think the last 18 years since the year 2000 have been so bad that Mm -hmm. it's made the appeal of nostalgia that much greater yeah like like the world is in such a fucking mess right now that like people like the idea of what they liked when they were kids but i think it's also like linked to the internet right because people could live in a bubble like the world was a mess back then as well yeah but they wouldn't have to face it all the time and now you do have to face it on all the time so you think of oh remember how good it was back then And the internet is kind of like, you know, Ready Player One, where it's this giant soup full of all the cultural references that have ever existed. And I don't want people to um, take what I just said to for me saying that, like, oh, it was always bad because no shit now. It's awful. (laughs) And like people our age can't get jobs anymore because uh, the people in charge realize, oh, we'll just give them contracts. We don't have to give them benefits or anything like that. Yeah. And guess what? 20 years from now, North America is going to be in shambles because there's going to be an uh, like a senior class that can't take care of each other, can't work jobs, and young people that I assume they've uploaded to the Matrix at that well, point. Well, fortunately, Obamacare has those death panels. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, the evolution of style as well is interesting to follow because, like, if you look at movies in the early 2000s, they're very specific, like, in that time of, like, man, they're very flashy, they're cutty, they're all this stuff. I guess, uh, like, aesthetics often aesthetics, de- yeah. date, yeah. Exactly, and, like, you can look at movies from, like, the last, uh, I don't want to say 15 years, because that's a long time, but, like, there hasn't been that much of a change of, like, what is popular. Like, it's kind of normalized in a way, especially Hollywood, of, like, everything kind of looks the same. Yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> sad. Well, I'm just trying to think, like, how to reconcile that with, like, the rise of uh, TV, you know? And the, and the fact that, like, it... Like, it, is that the next evolution... Well, I mean, the thing about TV is that there's so many channels, right? Yeah. And that there's so much product that has to be made, so individual decisions can be made. And the people who are in charge of making movies have decided, we just want to put everything in one movie and make a billion dollars. Yeah. Like, you look at box office tracking, it doesn't fucking mean anything, because you're like, oh, they made $700 million, and they're sad because they thought they were going to make a billion. Yeah. It's like, what does that mean? It doesn't mean anything. But it does, because people are losing their jobs over shit like that. And it's like, ugh, so dumb. I don't know. I just want to stay home and watch my W.C. Fields Fields movies. movies. (laughs) Just give me my pile of Hong Kong movies, and I'll just keep watching those, and I'll be good. Yeah. I mean... Speaking of styles that have evolved, like China, their cinema has evolved to a point that is so horrifying looking. I don't like it. That, like, when you're going to look back in five years, you're going to be like, how did anybody think this was okay? Yeah. If there's still movies at that point coming out of China. All right. So thank you very much for the letter, Joe. And our next letter is from loyal listener, oh my, what a guy. And he goes, dear important cinema club. With film fest- Is that his real name? Oh my, what a guy. And that's what his Gmail account says. All right. So I don't have a name here. With film fest season approaching with Tiff and Whiff, I was wondering if you had any advice on how to plan my festival schedule. Normally at Whiff, I will pick a couple of weekdays to take off of work and then fill my schedule with lots of films that I'm dying to see and filling in the blanks with second tier priorities. My problem is that the films I really want to see end up becoming widely available to watch later, but those second tier priorities never become available, particularly lots of Canadian European films <laughs> the unavailable Canadian films yep that sounds about <laughs> right and uh, they don't get distribution deals should I be focusing my time on these second and third tier priorities or plan my schedule to have the best time I always try and view as many as I can until next year's schedule is released well logical thing is to say 
see the movies you know you're not going to be able to see. Yeah, that's the logical thing. But then part of me also says, have a good time. Yeah, go see the movies that you want to see. So maybe there's a compromise position. (laughs) I mean, like at TIFF, I've seen films that have never been released to this day. Uh Like I saw a Filipino film that has never been released with English subtitles. I saw a four-hour documentary on... Ooh, I don't want to say the country because I'll get it wrong. Like, a documentary on their cinema and their new wave scene? Mm-hmm. Never. Like, I'm, where are you going to see that? Well, I know at TIFF, like, the older I get, the less excited I am about seeing movies three weeks early. That's all you... Yeah. And, and who the, cares about seeing the person on stage? Uh, yeah, yeah. You? And I, I don't care about seeing Timothy Chalamet in person either. You know, uh, I thought about that and I almost skipped uh, The Current War, which was directed by uh, the guy who did the Town of the Dreaded Sundown remake, which I really liked, and me, Earl, and the Dying Girl. And I was like, ah, oh, it's going to come out in a few weeks. I don't need to see it. And I was like, ah, you know what? I'll go see it. Glad I did, because that movie still has not come out. And okay. supposedly to what I hear, it's going to be in a radical different form as well, because it was caught up in that whole Harvey Weinstein awfulness, and it's been recut, going to be released wow. by a different company. Yeah, so you never know. Yeah, you never know. I mean, I do remember having a, an epiphany a couple of years ago when I went to see Jafar Panahi's Taxi at TIFF at the third screening, which was at the Lightbox, and of course, Jafar Panahi wasn't there, you know, and, because why would he be? And Like, that movie's going to open in a month at the Lightbox. Yeah, yeah, and I, I remember sitting there kind of thinking this is just like seeing a movie at the Lightbox. I could have waited a month. But that's us, right? Because we yeah. live in Toronto. Yeah. Um, so I don't... So, like, if you have art houses that will play those kind of movies, then it's tough, right? Because I know, like, Tiff is going to come up. I'm going to see movies that are going to open in three weeks. Well, sometimes... But I'm not paying for yeah. them. That's the difference. Sometimes it's irresistible. Yeah. You know? And, like, again, like, grown past the point where I'm like, man, I need to see this person on stage. Yeah. Now, that still stands if, like, John Woo was there. Like, yeah. I would be like, I need to go yeah. and we, just see him. We all sick. have a canon of people yeah. like that. But, like, I got Johnny Toe's autograph. Like, it, it's it's very short at this point of, like, people that I would need to see in person. I think at TIFF, I, li- I like Midnight Madness. Yes. Um, but that's, like, an audience experience. It's an audience experience. And I also uh, like Wavelengths because... Mm-hmm oftentimes it's the only time you'll ever see those movies and those are often movies that really benefit from being in a theater with yes. them trapped unable to escape or look at your phone <laughs> yeah stuck but, in the middle of an aisle <laughs> yeah i mean it doesn't stop some people i would balance both of them i guess because yeah. like again if the movie's opening in a few weeks can can you just like hold on and not yeah. see it but also you know it's your life have yep, fun have fun all right well thank you very much for the letter and we will definitely be talking about tiff more when it comes up in september all right so our last letter is from swamp flicks you think that's his real name <laughs> <laughs> it goes hello just wanted to thank you as many people already have for introducing me to the world of matt farley and motor oh wonderful not only have i been enjoying matt's movies but since i started reviewing podcasting about them on our lowly blog from over a thousand miles away he's been reaching out to talk to us directly like a total sweetheart (laughs) sounds like matt (laughs) i can tell that i'm obviously being indoctrinated into a cult but it's such a wholesome (laughs) experience that i don't mind at all Something I'd like to hear you all discuss on the show is that sometimes people describe movies as being messy. In recent discussions of films like Born in Flame, Sorry to Bother You, and Sion Sono Suicide Club, I'm starting to realize I'm much more attracted to films widely described as messy, uneven, or all over the place, as opposed to technically precise, Kubrickian works. Do you find yourself similarly attracted to messy movies? More importantly, can you articulate what people mean when they use that word to dismiss a film as something not worth being taken seriously? Keep up the great work. Brandon Ledette Swamp Flicks. Well, thank you very much, Brandon. And I'm very glad that you're enjoying Matt Farley's movies. We've heard from a lot of people that uh, have been turned on to him. And every time we mention him on an episode, I hope there's people that haven't listened to that Matt Farley episode that will go see his movies and listen to the podcast. I think this has been our biggest contribution to <laughs> yeah, film culture. That's right. Is to get him a little bit, a little bit better known. As our friend Peter Kaplowski said... Uh, he was like, I don't understand why more people don't like his movies. Yeah. And I'm the same. Like, but, I asked myself that question as well. But then, as we've seen, once they watch them. Yeah, it just they just need to watch them. Yeah. And even, like, cynical people I've seen just soften, like, watching Don't Let the River Beast Get You, which, again, is the one you should start with. Uh-huh. And you'll move on from there because you'll just want more of that stuff. And I'm sure Matt Farley is walking right now in Danvers, Massachusetts, listening to this podcast. And he's like, oh, they mentioned me again. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if people keep sending letters, we'll keep mentioning you, Matt. 
Uh, and as far as what a messy movie means, I would define a movie that, I mean, that can mean like a lot of different things. It could be dramatically uncompelling in a way that you would expect. It could be tonally all over the place. It could be technically shoddy. Like messy is kind of a catch-all. It could be overlong. Yeah, to warn people like, hey, this doesn't fit what you think like a three-act structure of a movie would fit or hit all the beats that you would expect it to hit. Yeah. I use messy most oftenly when I'm talking about a movie that I like and that I just want to like give people like, oh, messy, and they will interpret it however. Yeah, oftentimes when you use it, and I think you use it a lot on the podcast, you're you're talking about movies that, yeah, are either kind of um, outsider art in a way or that are overly ambitious. Yes. I mean, I would say... Like, you could easily call, like, Choi Hark's filmography messy. Right. Or most of Hong Kong films, really. Yeah. Because they are, like, all over the place. And sometimes they need to entertain. They'll throw everything in the kitchen sink. Is that something that, like, when you talk about a messy movie, are you attracted to those things? or I think, for the most part, I am. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, messy can also be a pejorative. Bad, yeah. yeah. Like, we could call, like, Jackie Chan's last few films messy. And we don't mean that in a positive way, like Bleeding Steel or something like that. Yeah. But I also think that like, I would probably be more attracted to a messy film because messy often indicates as well, again, depending on the context, that like, it's usually an individual voice putting everything into it. Yeah. Swamp Flicks or, you know, Swamp to his friends. Mr. Flicks was his father's name. Um, Probably his example of using Kubrickian I think that that's very on the nose in a good way mm-hmm. about like what cinephiles when they're coming up define as something that's great yes. is David Fincher, yeah. Kubrick. Yeah, people who are totally in control Tro- of yeah. everything. And yeah, when when people aren't in control of anything, I think that can sometimes be more interesting because there's a little more room for like audience participation in a way. There's room for interpretation. Yeah, you know? I, I mean, like I mentioned last episode in the back matter that I've been really attracted to like shot on video films in the last few years. And that is like very messy. The definition of how those movies are executed. Because I mean, sometimes it's like in that example, it's people that don't know what they're doing. So it goes off in every direction, yeah. which is great. Then you have like Hong Kong films, which are very technically accomplished, but because Again, there's so much thrown in, it's very messy. And I like both versions of those things. Mm. I would say that like mm, like the Kubrickian kind of like perfection is something that I'm like, eh, doesn't really interest me that yeah. much. Or but, how about something like Margaret by Kenneth Lonergan? Would would you call that messy? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And I mean that's in, in a design. good way, I think. Yeah. yeah. Cause there's just so much stuff. And like you said, it could also be like messy means overlong. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, thank you very much for your letter. So the next letter. I should give a little bit of a preamble here because when it popped up in my email box, I almost had a heart attack (laughs) because the subject just said from Lizzie Borden. Lizzie Borden, director of Born in Flames and Working Girls. And a subject of a previous episode of the Important Cinema Club podcast. Yes, I think that's who it is, but we'll just have to read the email to find out. Well, let's let's see. Hi, Justin. I hope this reaches you. (laughs) I'm so honored you devoted an hour to my films, especially Born in Flames and Working Girls. Thank you for the wonderful and generous things you said about them. I had, of course, hoped that Love Crimes would sink without a trace. The truth about that film was worse than I had ever stated in print. For example, Kit Carson shot the flashbacks against my will. I have so much I'd want to tell you. In fact, I'd love to talk to you about it. Just FYI, if you're interested. In searching for your email, I saw the breadth of what your company does. It is spectacular. Thank you again. All my best, Lizzie. So it was crazy to receive this email from Lizzie Borden. You never think that like... (laughs) We're through the looking glass, people. (laughs) That people that you talk about on this podcast will actually reach out and contact you. And for the record, this is the first time a filmmaker reached out to us. Matt Farley, I reached out to him. Okay. I want to know about love crimes. Do you want to know about love crimes? I have lots of questions about love crimes. So to be continued, dot, dot, dot. Cliffhanger. And we'll get back to that at another time. And again, you can email us at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. It's also in the body of like the podcast write-up if you just want to get it. So you know you have it perfect. On the Patreon episode this week, uh, with everybody talking about who is America, we decided to delve into one of Sasha Baron Cohen's earlier films, not Borat, but rather Ali G in the house. That's right. Um, Does it hold off? <laughs> 
<laughs> You'll have to listen to the Patreon to find out. Yeah. $5 a month. You can check us out at uh, patreon.com slash club. Uh, and you get four episodes every month for five bucks, plus like any time that me and Will or sometimes me and somebody else record little like conversations after seeing a movie. We call them post-film. They're usually about 10 minutes long and the only last there uh, four at a time. So make sure to check it out. Mm-hmm. Um, Will, by the time this episode comes out, we're not going to have to do those some movies. We're not even going to be close to 150. Oh. I know. It's sad. So if you're listening to this and you're a rich benefactor and you just want to drop like a whole bunch of money to bring us across that goal, you know what? We'll accept it. Whatever 150s worth of Patreon subscribers would be. But this may be... Megan Ellison. Yeah, the last time we mentioned Stephen Odenkirk some movies. Wow. I know. It's it incredible to imagine. <laughs> I know. know. That'll never come up again. Well, you can save us, people that are not subscribed to the Patreon, but listen to every week. So next week, we're going to do a Japanese filmmaker. Probably, like, one of the more popular countries that we've avoided the most. Yeah, it's weird. We like Japanese films. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Is it because that, like, we feel that we can't say enough about them or we're not informed enough? I don't know. It's weird. I don't know. But listen, we're doing one now, and who is it? We're going to be doing Sion Sono, the director, very prolific director of films like uh, Suicide Club, which was mentioned in a previous letter, uh, Love Exposure, and a whole bunch of stuff. Like, his work spans the gamut. If you haven't checked him out, I would definitely check out uh, those two that I just mentioned. Uh, Why Don't You Play in Hell is a favorite of mine. I know Will has issues with it. And I think that's going to be part of the discussion that we're going to have next week. Looking forward to it. Mm -hmm. Um, Hopefully, it will not last 15 minutes like some previous Japanese filmmakers that we've done (laughs) who remain unnamed. Yeah. So, until next week, my name is Justin McGlynn. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. As I tend to do... I went to the Universal Library and walked around the film book section. And it's such a treasure trove of like stuff you can't find anywhere. I love it. I've talked about it a million times. But then there's this thing you got to be careful about. And that's the book about a movie or a genre or anything that's just plot summary. Oh. And like, I will, I'm sure you've been burned before. Oh, of course. Like, even this week, didn't you pick up a book by um, Bert I. Gordon, Mr. Big himself, director of the amazing, incredible Colossal Man? Yeah, Beginning of the End, which is the famous giant grasshopper film. And that book is filled with just plot summaries. Like, that's most of what it is. I think it's a sign of maturity that I didn't buy the book. I know. you were. V- I was very proud of you because yeah. it would have gone on your shelf and never been read. Correct. <laughs> Until we did our Mr. Big episode and you're like, oh no! I don't even really like Bird Eye Gordon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I went to that bookstore, saw it on the shelf, picked it up and went, nah, I don't want it. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. But, like, the evolution of what, like, movie books used to be to what they are now, I think, is really fascinating of, like, how they've changed. Mm. Last week, a letter writer mentioned, like, that he loves collecting novelizations. We didn't really talk about, like, why novelizations were so popular at the time of, you know, their biggest boom. And that's because people just could not see those movies. That's right. And, like, that's why script books and, you know, those books that are not scripts, but just transcripts of the movie? Ugh. Yeah, or there's a particular genre of book that you can still find at Goodwills and used bookstores to this day, which are Richard J. Annabile's, he was the author, but just his book that are just still images from movies. Oh, yeah. So you've probably seen it. There's one for Psycho. There's Mm. one for Frankenstein. Uh, I think Buster Keaton, the Marx Brothers, maybe even W.C. Fields. In fact, there are books where it's just like like, like, or like all of Casablanca, Mm -hmm. like picture after picture with just dialogue underneath. I mean, like VHS did not exist. Like yeah. you saw them in theaters, you didn't see them at all. And those books, like if you need a doorstop, <laughs> they're, they're great. I mean, they're haunting used bookstores everywhere. They should just throw them all out. <laughs> yeah, Nobody should. wants them. They have no use at all. Yeah. I'm, I'm always really disappointed when I pick up a book like that or like script books, hoping for the script and finding a transcript. I'm yeah. like, oh, come on. I have the script book for, or I had when I was a kid for the Mr. Bean movie. <laughs> I know. What? Didn't that have like behind the scenes info? It did. But like, why would I, like, isn't, if you're, if you're reading about Mr. Bean's <laughs> antics, haven't you, haven't you missed the point? 
but maybe it's like nothing is better than a child's imagination. And yeah, you're like that's right. picturing the amazing Mr. Bean movie. And it wasn't like the uncut first draft or anything like that. I can't remember. Or you want to see like the steps of like comedy. I think there was a Dumb and Dumber script book as well. Yeah. That's just like, even in the 90s, that's unimaginable to our generation because we like have the mm-hmm. internet we can see these things if we want to but like the reference books i, I think have dwindled mm-hmm. in recent years like leonard malton's movie guide no. out, out of business bow wow rest in peace video hound uh, <laughs> like why would you need leonard malton's video guide though you like, would there's no reason for it anymore. but like i mentioned before i have no greater love than like reference books filled with movies i don't know and, and like personal yeah. reviews yeah and so you know this week i picked up the psychotronic video guide off the shelf mm-hmm. And I was a little disappointed by it on this flip through because I don't I don't need it anymore. Yeah. Like you, but when I was a You're te- all grown up. <laughs> but when I was a teenager, that book was packed with, you know, movies I hadn't heard of. Exotic possible worlds of mm-hmm. exploration. And now it's like didn't you read me a summary? Read me. It sounds like you're like beside me as I, as was, I go to sleep. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or you sent me a photo of a summary of like, I don't remember what it was. It was King Lear, Jean-Luc Godard's King Lear. And it was very clear that like uh, Michael Weldon, the author, had not seen the movie and was just making shit up. You know how I knew he hadn't seen it is because he mentions co-starring Quentin Tarantino before anyone knew who he was. And... Quentin Tarantino put that on his resume as a young actor to pad it out because because uh. Tarantino knew nobody's seen this movie. <laughs> and so, you know, flash forward 10 years later, there it is in the Psychotronic Video Guide. I mean, there's still value to those hilarious lies. Like we've talked about before the Thomas Wisner Asian cult cinema mm-hmm. books. He did a bunch on Japanese cinema and a bunch on Hong Kong as well. And you read these entries. Some of these movies don't even exist. Yeah. Like he just made them up whole cloth. Well, another one that I would often use as a litmus test was Bruce Lee Fights Back from the Grave. Yes, which, you mentioned this before. Yeah, the, the trailer for that movie said that it was about Bruce Lee coming back from the grave and fighting the Black Angel of Death. However, that's not actually what the movie is. The movie is just a standard Korean martial arts movie that they tacked a mm. prologue to. And so if the reference guide says... Bruce Lee returns to fight the Black Angel of Death. You know they didn't see it. And they oh. they don't take the book seriously. Or if uh, they credit the director as Umberto Lenzi, which yep. was a rumor going around that he directed it, which is crazy because it's just a Korean film they tacked on like a beginning to. That was Aquarius releasing. I've got a poster for that movie that says directed by Burt Lenzi. <laughs> yes. <it>. Burt Lenzi. <laughs> The brother of the director of Eyeball and Almost Human. Uh, But, like, as we're talking about the evolution of books, listen, if you're writing some kind of textbook out there, please, please just just separate the plot synopsis from the main body of the text. If you think you need it, more than, like, five lines. I think a plot synopsis should be two sentences. I have never, ever read a plot synopsis from beginning to end when I see it's a paragraph. No. Why would I? Like, if I've either seen the movie, so I don't need to know, or I want to know more about the film, and I'm hoping that I'm going to get, like, personal opinion and stuff like that in the body of the review. Right. I mean, is it just an excuse to pad out books? That's how McFarlane structures their books, is, like, long plot synopsis, and then, like, critical opinion. Yeah, I don't know why. Yeah, I think it's probably just, like, that's the way it used to be done, and that's the way it keeps being done, these academic texts. Speaking of the video guide... There was a subject that I wanted to bring up that we haven't really talked about on the podcast before, and that's burnout. Like the idea of like, you love movies so much, and one day you just wake up and you go, I don't need this anymore. Because that happened essentially to Michael Weldon, the guy who did the Psychotronic Video Guide. Yeah. And it also happened to Danny Perry, the guy who wrote like the textbooks to like a generation before us of cult movies, the cult movie guide. Perhaps that will happen to us. You think it'll happen? After this podcast goes down in flames and we'll wake up and we'll realize I don't have to watch four of these movies every week. You know, what if I, do you think that it's, that it's like work yet? Like to watch like WC field movies or depends very much on what week it is. Yeah. What topic it is. Yeah. But like, I I mean, we talked about like, I don't need to see all the Hollywood movies in theaters anymore. Yeah. Or like, I don't need to go to TIFF and see like the big movies. I think the stuff that I like, I like more than I ever have. Yes. I think that's true as well. And maybe it's true for them and they just don't feel the need to write about it. Like, I listened to a podcast with Danny Perry, and he said that when he wrote his uh, guide to the film fanatic, he watched 1,500 movies in a year. Damn. That's insane. Like That's not even sustainable. Like, when you do that, no wonder you're, like, 
I don't want to watch movies anymore. Yeah. I mean, Patton Oswalt wrote a, a whole book about that, which was, he was like, go outside, do other stuff, which not a big fan of that thesis, but. Well, I also feel like, like, why do you, how do you even need to get to the point where you have to say that? Yeah. It's, I don't know. Like movies for me, I love watching them by myself, but like the communal experience is everything mm-hmm. as like, if you gave me a choice between like, oh, you could watch 1500 movies by yourself or you could watch like these many movies with a good crowd who are into it, I would go definitely for the crowd one. Mm. So, and Danny Perry did talk about he movie watching was a very singular, like lonely experience like, for him. Like a religious in some way. Yeah. And I guess like any religion, eventually you go, this is bullshit. What am, why am I doing this? Mm-hmm. I could be talking to people. But as Matt Farley would say, talking to people is just a waste of time anyway. Yeah. <laughs>